prayer this morning that our soul is satisfied in you alone. And though our attentions are easily caught up in any number of things, Lord, will will you by your voice this morning, not mine, by the ministry of your word and by the Holy Spirit, will you take our hearts, affections and help us to fix them solely on Jesus? We need your help for this, Lord, so we ask for it. Amen. Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn them to the book of Colossians. Some of you may be aware of this. Um, My childhood upbringing was also in, in the land where God resides. Dave was awesome to hear him this morning talking about uh, the home country, Queensland. Um, I I grew up in the Gulf of Carpentaria in a small uh, indigenous community and grew up uh, as a minority culturally, racially in that community. Uh, It's all I'd known from birth uh, all the way through my lower schooling years. And even to this day... Um, though I haven't lived there now for 30 years or so, it's the place when someone does those word association games and they say home, that's the, that's the image that comes to my mind when, when they say home. Um, the little, little tiny community on the banks of the Nicholson River in the Gulf of Carpentaria, uh, Dumaji. And I don't get back there anywhere near as much as I would like and um, I have people there that I grew up with and they are family in, in the truest sense of the word to me. And I long to be there more often and for obvious reasons that's difficult. And yet, I'm not sure if you have a place like that in your experience where you feel like you're not there physically but there is something, there's something about that place and those people there that you connect with and you're there in spirit, right? That sense of, that's where I, I know I have people there. They're my people and that's my place and I'm known there. And um, the times that I do go back, years can go past, even decades, and you can walk in and people will embrace you and I can embrace them. And that sense of just going, we knew you cared for us. And it's special. I hope that you have a place like that in your life. Maybe it's here. And whenever you're away, there's that sense of just going, I, I know that's where I belong. That's, that's the place I call home. It's a special thing to have in your experience. Paul had it. You can read about it, Colossians chapter 2. We're going to read just the first five verses of this chapter and reflect on what God might be saying to us this morning. Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. If it's a little different to yours, just feel free to follow along as best as you can, starting from verse 1. This is what it says. Paul is speaking again to the 
church in Colossae. And he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That's God's word. I just want to make a couple of observations about this very short little transition that Paul starts to um, make between, remember in chapter 1, he's been reminding the Colossians there how significant Jesus really is. Jesus is, isn't just something that we, he says, you know, sort of tag on to the rest of what's going on in our life. Jesus is just not some type of upgrade or an add-on. Jesus isn't something that you can just option up your life with. Paul says, no, Jesus, Jesus is everything. Jesus says he is preeminent. He's the first. In fact, he's not just first. He is the, the one through which everything else in this world makes sense. For him and by him, all things that were created, they exist because of Jesus. That's the way that we, that's the filter that we look through this entire world with. And that's what Paul has been saying to the Colossian church. Because he knows, right? He knows that these Colossians, these guys that are out in the country a little bit, they're sort of a bit isolated from the rest of what's going on in the known world at the time. They've come to know Jesus somehow, and there's this little church that's meeting there in the city of Colossae. But Paul knows that there's some people there sort of causing trouble. He knows that they're whispering and devising schemes amongst this church to distract their vision from Jesus and fill their hearts with a bunch of other different things. And we're going to come to them as we go through the book. Paul wants to bring their attention back to just saying, hey, Jesus, Jesus is just not an add-on. It is all about Jesus. So this morning, um, I, I would call this message more of Jesus. That's what Paul's wanting for them. He's saying, I want, you to, I want you to grasp more of Jesus. I want you to see more of Jesus. I want you to experience more of Jesus. And so let's go back to verse 1 and just make a couple of observations. I want you to know, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Also for those at Laodicea, it's a neighboring town. In fact, Paul widens it out even more. In fact, for anyone who hasn't seen me face to face, Paul's addressing a group of Christians that we're included in. You ever met Paul? I will one day. I'm looking forward to it. I'd love to have a chat with him. There's a few things I, I think, I wish you didn't say that, Paul. <laughs> but he did. And it's because God told him to say them. 
And so I'm sure Paul would say, hey, don't, you don't have a beef with me, all right? <laughs> Jesus is over there. You've got eternity to chat with him about it. But I've never met Paul face to face, and so I'm included in, in this little statement. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, he says. Paul struggled for you. Did you realize that? Paul was struggling, not just for the Colossians, not just for the Laodiceans. Paul was struggling for you. There was, a, there was a battle going on in Paul's life and he understood that the battle was important because of people that he had not met yet. Disciples and, and Christians, not only in his age, but, but ages to come, which we're included in. And Paul says, I'm in a fight and I'm fighting for you guys even though I've never met you. What was he fighting for? What was this struggle it is for real, real flesh and bone people. This is not some sort of abstract idea, like some sort of spiritual way of talking to make him sound good or anything. Paul's saying, guys, I'm in a struggle, and I'm in a struggle for real people. Real flesh and bone people. And I want to make the observation that that's what the gospel does. That's what Jesus does. That's what the good news about his grace does in people's lives. Because often, isn't it true that the thing that we will fight for, they're the people we'll fight for family? Right? These are my blood, these are my people, and I'll fight for them. And that's good. You know, the Bible says if, if you don't look after your own, man, it's worse than the pagans, the Bible would say. You've got to look after your own. But the gospel, the gospel broadens those boundaries. The good news of Jesus that, that a, a God who is perfect loved so perfectly that he would even extend that love to sinful people, to people who have broken his rule of law, for people who have fallen short of all of his glory and everything that he's worth, the gospel says, I'll go to them. I'll fight for them. Jesus said, it wasn't for the righteous that I came to die, right? The sinners the sick, they're the ones who need a doctor. And so, so Jesus likened himself to a shepherd who was willing to leave the 99 and go out to see the one that was lost. And Paul is saying, I'm struggling for you guys, and that's what the gospel does. It transforms and changes our understanding of significance and importance and it makes strangers family. The gospel and the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us helps us to see people that we don't even know yet. People who are different to us. People who are culturally strangers to us maybe. And it says they're worth it. They're worth it because God says they're worth it. And so they're worth it to me. I'm not here just to look after my own. I'm not here just to sort of try and say, well, the people who are just like me are important, or the people that I spend time with here on week-by-week -week basis, or the people that I meet up for coffee during the week, they're the ones that are important. No. God says the boundaries are bigger than that. And Paul says, I've been struggling for you guys. For you in Colossae, for 
those in Laodicea, for those who haven't seen me face to face. And he has some sort of goal in mind, right? It's there, it's written. Verse 2, that, that their hearts, this is what he's fighting for. This is what the struggle is about for Paul. What's worth it, Paul? Why are you struggling for these people that you don't even know, that you've never met? You shouldn't have to care about them. Aren't there other people to care about them? And Paul says, no, this is what I'm struggling for. And he lists it in verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. That's the goal that Paul has in mind. And secondly, after their hearts may be encouraged, he wants them knit together in love. Encouraged hearts and enriched community was worth fighting for for Paul. It wasn't just so that people could feel good about themselves and have a nice place to meet. That, that's not the end game. It's a little Marvel reference. That's not the end game. That, that's not the end result in Paul's mind. He says, yes, it's important that we have encouraged hearts. Yes, it's important that we have enriched community. It's worth fighting for, he says, but not just for those things on, of the, in and of themselves. Your growth as a Christian, that your hearts be encouraged, that the community of God be enriched and, and bound together in love, your growth as a Christian, to use a technical term, you may have heard it before, it's called sanctification. So the Bible talks about your growth as a Christian, your transformation as an individual disciple of Jesus, being slowly shaped and moulded like a piece of clay does under the hands of a potter. You ever seen that? I, I did art all the way through to my senior year in year 12. It's the only subject I failed. <laughs> I went really close on numerous other subjects, but that one I actually failed. Um, but I, I actually was pretty good at all the pracs, all the practical things. I could draw and sketch and do clay work and all that sort of stuff. I hated the theory. Who cares what that guy painted and what paint he used? I don't know. Now I see the importance of it. But then all I wanted to do was the practical stuff. Apparently you'll fail if you just do the practical things. Who knew? Um, but I enjoyed doing clay work on a potter's wheel. I actually really loved getting that piece of clay and throwing it on there and sitting in front of the, the potter's wheel and you know, getting it up to speed and starting to get the water on it and shaping it. It always fascinated me that from some indescript lump of clay could emerge, well, in my case, just probably an ashtray or something. <laughs> no one in my family smoked, but I would come home, here's an ashtray. You know, um, it probably didn't start out to be an ashtray. It might have just been sort of like that's what it became. But as, as my skills improved, it went from ashtrays to here's a key bowl, you know, um, or a vase. But have you ever seen a master potter at work? I went for a, a family holiday years ago, and it was one of those places where they do displays, and it was like an art center. And there was someone who just, and it was like. It's like magic, right? This piece of clay, and they just... What used to take me hours in an art class to... Here's this lumpy ashtray. Under, under a master potter's hand, they just sort of touch it, and this 
ornate, beautiful piece of pottery just, oh, just appears, right? Yeah. Now you can look at it on YouTube or something like that. And just what they can create is astounding. And the reality is, is that the Bible likens your growth as a Christian to being like a lump of clay. Sorry. Some of us are more lumpy than others. But <laughs> we, we get put onto the master potter's wheel and, and the master puts his hand to it and that piece of clay starts to emerge into something beautiful and something useful. And, and some, of, some of those pieces of clay, the Bible says, turn into something that is, you know, you, you get that piece of clay home and, and it's turned into whatever and you give it to your mum and they go, that's going straight to the pool room. <laughs> that's a little, another reference to a movie. Um, or it could be, oh, that's lovely. I'm going to put that in a special place. <laughs> you know, parents know you've got special places, right? You've got special places, that artwork and things like that. It's very special. The Bible says that all of our lives are being shaped together and, and the, the clay has no place to say to the potter, you should, you should have made me into something different. You've made a mistake. I was supposed to be a beautiful picture, not an ashtray, or whatever you think you might be. But under the hand of a master, your life is being transformed into exactly what God has in mind for you. And some may on the surface seem more spectacular, but there is no one's life who is not useful and precious under the hand of the master. That's what sanctification is. It's the process of being shaped. And it takes time. It takes skill. Not yours. But God's. And we have the joy of knowing that he says, what I began, I will finish. It might be taking... To you, you might be saying, why is this taking so long, Right? God, didn't you create the whole world in seven days? Why, why can't you fix me up? In God says, you, you don't know the whole story. You don't know what I'm using to shape you. And what I find surprising is so many of us who live in this era of time in particular think that that process is about me and pretty much me alone. This is my walk as a disciple. I'm an individual who follows Jesus, and you are. But I want you to notice that what Paul's talking about here, he says that sanctification is a community project. Look at it. He says, I'm struggling for you, right? Verse 2, that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. That, that's what we're saying. Yes, amen. I want that. I want the full assurance of understanding. I want to know all the knowledge of God's mystery. That seems a bit mysterious in itself. How can we know all the mystery? We'll get to that. But look, but look how it happens. That your hearts may be encouraged, knit together in full love. 
That's the means. That's what Paul's struggling for. He's saying, I want you guys to realize that you are not in this alone, that you are in it together, and actually being together is part of the plan for how God is shaping you to be the person that he wants you to be. The lone ranger Christian who says, I'm just going to go out there and follow Jesus. I don't need anybody else. We're throwing ourselves off the potter's wheel. Part of where the potter's wheel is, is is growing together. It's not just growing, it's growing together. It's allowing the community of God's people to be a part of God's tool to help shape us and mould us and make us to be what it is that God has designed and called us to be. This is not a solo exercise. Your growth as a Christian is not a solo exercise. There are a thousand better preachers out there and you can dial into them every day of the week if you want to and you have an internet connection. There are thousands of more mature Christians than maybe you could find in this room. There are people who have experienced all sorts of things, done all sorts of mission trips, who have done all sorts of... There are just all these other Christians out there and if, we, if this was a solo experience, then you could just sit at home and dial in, right? But for some reason, in God's masterful plan, that will always be second rate. You might hear a great preacher that you love to listen to You might hear of and read a book about some great Christians who lived a very inspiring life and those things might be good and those things might be useful to you but they will always be second rate. They will always be subpar than just coming together with this bunch of ordinary people to listen to this very ordinary preacher. Somehow God does miracles through this stuff. And I don't know why and I don't know how, but he does. And the Bible says that that's the way that God works. So if you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to be shaped on the wheel, can I encourage you? Connect with people. Live that growing up life beside somebody else. We need to learn vulnerability with each other. The campaign that comes out once a year on TV, the Are You OK campaign, talking about mental health, is vital and important, but it should be a question that we're asking each other every day. That you would walk into here or meet someone down the street and say, Hey, are you OK? And not because they look depressed, whatever that means, Not because you haven't seen them for three weeks at church or you don't remember the last time you saw them. You think, oh, no, they're not coming to church. Are you okay? No. Just, hey, tell me me how your walk with Jesus is going. Because I'm struggling today. I feel like I'm a failure with it. I I feel like I'm I'm a rubbish parent maybe or I feel like I'm a struggling young one who doesn't quite understand what I should be doing but I feel like the world's expectations are on my shoulders and are you okay because I'm not let's walk with each other that's God's plan for sanctification right that's part of it at least so sanctification is a community 
project. Paul links your growth as an individual with the health of this body. As this body grows, it impacts you. As you grow, it impacts the body. The two are a symbiotic relationship. That's another reference to another movie. That's what I want you to notice. Second thing I want you to notice, it starts from where we've just finished, verse 2, that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge. Now I want you to notice that there is nothing wrong with being rich. There's nothing wrong with being rich as long as we use the right measuring tape. All right? Because you look at the language that Paul's using here. He, he wants our hearts to be encouraged, to be knit together in love, to reach all the riches. If you I want the riches. Reach all the riches, the full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And in Christ, he says, is hidden all the treasures. Yeah, I want the treasures. I want the riches. Encouraged hearts and enriched community is the context for sanctification, how we grow. And sanctification in Paul's books is about getting rich. But the right type. There are riches beyond your wildest dreams to be found by following Christ. They're probably not the riches that we think of first. Or the, or the riches that you're thinking of right now, or the riches that you most desire even. Maybe they're not even the riches that you've been told about by other Christians, possibly. Those types of riches, they're the trinkets. They're, they're the plastic treasures. They're the gold-wrapped ones, the little coins, you know, the, the, the monopoly money. They're, they're not true riches. I think when, when false teachers in the church, and there are, there are false teachers, those who, who take the gospel and turn it into a sales commodity, when, when they offer you health, wealth and happiness for just a small seed of faith, <laughs> you just plant that seed and God's going to bless you, That's rubbish. That's, that's, not what, that's not what the Bible is talking about. When, when they say that to you, I want you to tell them that you've already found a treasure. Amen. When you hear that there are treasures out there for you, if only you just invest into the kingdom that $10 or that $100 or that $1,000, you tell them that you found a treasure a billion times more than that. Say, I found a treasure that is worth more than all the garbage that you can gather and offer. There is a treasure beyond counting that no balance sheet will ever be able to measure. A treasure that is found in the assurance and knowledge of the greatest mystery that God has ever given and the greatest mystery that he has ever revealed. And it's not what is the treasure, it is who is the treasure. So in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus was living in this world and walking on this earth, he told a bunch of short stories to help illustrate what the, 
what the kingdom of God is like. People were saying, well, what's this kingdom, right? You don't look like a king. You're not riding in here on a big white stallion. Jesus said, well, not yet I'm not, but hang around, I will. You don't look like a king. And so Jesus told a bunch of stories to help them understand what the kingdom of God is really like. Now, two of those little stories are found in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, verse 44, I can just read them to you. They're very short, if you like. And Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and he covered it up. And then, in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. Now, can you imagine for a moment being that man's friend? The man's been on an afternoon walk. He finds a treasure. It's in a field. He hides the treasure. No one knows it's there. And it says he goes in his joy, which means to me, I would say, if you found a treasure like that, you're excited, right? You're celebrating, but you're trying to stay cool about it. And you go home, and you put your house on the market. And you... You're getting cashed up, right? I sell my car, sell my house, and your friends are just going, what's going on? What's happened? Right? This guy is selling up. What's going on? He goes, oh, I've got it all under control. I'm selling everything I have. Why? I'm going to buy that bush block. Are you mental? Like, what's going on? What's wrong with, what, what's wrong with you? Are you Okay. He's found a treasure. He found a treasure. And it was beyond anything that this world had to offer. In fact, that treasure was so significant, so vital, so important, so valuable. He says, it's worth everything I've got. Everything to gain that treasure. Jesus continues the story. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant... In search of fine pearls. I mean, this is this guy's job, right? He buys and sells pearls. That's his job. He buys them to sell them. It's like those people who flip houses. They buy houses not to live in them. They buy them to, you know, fix a rupper, sell it to make money. That's what this merchant does. He finds pearls, but not to keep. He finds pearls to sell. So the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. Who for? For himself. He was like, I'll give my business away. I will give everything away to gain that treasure. And Jesus is saying the treasure that he is, that Christ is, it's not just worth a little seed fund. It's not just worth a little gift here to gain something. It's worth everything. Everything. He surpasses everything. We need more of Jesus. That's what this is all about. Jesus is the treasure worth losing everything to gain. Jesus is the pearl of great price. Jesus is the treasure worth abandoning everything else to possess. So there's nothing wrong with getting rich. As long as we use the right measure. 
There's nothing wrong with getting rich as long as the treasure we're looking for is Jesus. Here's how we're going to finish. Verse 4 and verse 5. Paul's been saying to the Colossian church, listen, I'm, I'm struggling for you guys. I want you to understand that your growth as a Christian, well, it's, it's about being knit together in love. It's about having your hearts encouraged so that you might gain the treasure, right? So that you might understand all the fullness of this great mystery. And he says that mystery is Christ. That's, that's how you understand the mystery, right? How do you understand a mystery? Paul says, well, look at Jesus. He's the answer. Why does he say all of this? Well, he says, I say this, this is verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. The third thing I want you to notice as we're done is this. If we've got Jesus, if we've got this treasure, we don't need anything else. We don't need anything else. There was, there was probably a rumour going around in the church in Colossae. Rumours, rumours, um, it's sad, but they, they seem to thrive in churches. And it shouldn't be that way. But there was a rumour going around the church in Colossae, I think, and I think that the rumour was this. Someone there was saying to the Colossian church, hey, you, you guys aren't very important. You guys, you guys don't really count for much in the kingdom. You guys are pretty insignificant. You are spiritual nobodies. After all, if, if you were important, wouldn't Paul be here? Wouldn't the greatest missionary, the first, you know, sort of celebrity preacher, wouldn't he come here if you were important? If, if you were someone special, wouldn't Paul be here? Paul tells them that Jesus is the treasure. Paul tells them that Jesus is the goal. He says, I'm telling you all of this because I don't want someone to delude you with plausible arguments. I don't want someone to come in and whisper in your ear telling you something that might sound to be true but isn't true. I don't want you to be deceived because though I'm not here in the body, I'm, I'm absent in the body, verse 5 says, I'm with you in spirit. I'm with you in spirit. But beside that, what I'm really rejoicing about is not how much you want me to come and visit, not how much you want to hang out with Paul. I'm rejoicing because I can see your good order and the firmness of faith in Jesus. So Paul is encouraging them. When you've got Jesus, you don't need Paul to show up in your church. When you've got Jesus, you don't need Apollos to come and visit your church. When you've got Jesus, you don't need whatever celebrity pastor to come and say, hey, you guys are awesome. When you've got Jesus, you don't need the latest program that everyone's running. When you've got Jesus, you don't have to have a million-dollar budget. When you've got Jesus, you don't need any of those things. When you've got Jesus, you've got enough. And there are people who are seeking to delude you. There are people who seek you to buy into a reality which is built on smoke and mirrors and deception. Don't take the bait. It's a sharp hook at the end of that line. 
People will tell you all sorts of things. And maybe some of it might even make sense. That's the problem. Plausible arguments can make sense. But measure it against what you know to be true. Measure it against the worth that you have in Christ. Measure it against the full assurance and the knowledge of the greatest treasure that you will ever hold. Paul reminds us, he reminds the Colossians, he reminds the Laodiceans that they have Jesus, right? And that anyone else is second rate at best. And yet even though that is true, one of the joys of Christian community is that of being connected even when they're apart and Paul says, guys, I'm with you. I I know I'm not present there, but I'm with you. I'm thinking of you, I'm praying for you, I'm, I'm concerned for you, I'm struggling with you, I'm with you, shoulder to shoulder in this discipleship walk. And he says, I'm cheering you on. I'm your biggest fan. I'm part of the cloud of witnesses that is watching on in your life and saying, follow Jesus, look to him. That's what Hebrews 12 says. Therefore, since we are surrounded, therefore, since we We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, right? He's the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Your growth and sanctification is a community project. Grab a hold of the riches that are found in Christ and if you've got him, you don't need anything else. Let's pray. Lord, what an an honour What a privilege. The God of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you're here. You're with us this morning. You're present. Lord, thank you for the encouragement. Thank you for your word which has cheered us on this morning, who has convicted us maybe. Help help us turn our attention and our eyes in the right direction, Lord, help us to grab hold of you. You are our treasure. And Lord, where we've grabbed other treasures, will you give us the eyes to see them and the courage to set them aside? Lord, we only want you. Help us to grow and grow together. In your name we pray. Amen.